We are going to wrap up our missions-focused sermon series and missions-focused month, really, by returning to a familiar passage of Scripture that uh, you may recall we were actually in just a few months ago. I don't normally preach the same text. Well, I, I seldom ever preach the same text twice, um, but I, I virtually never preach it uh, so closely like I am this morning. And I, I promise you, it is a different sermon. So if you're uh, wanting to fact check me on that, you can go back uh, to whenever it was in June or July, whenever it was I preached from here last, and you can compare and just make sure I did do a, a normal uh, sermon prep week. It wasn't, I'm not cutting corners. Um, it's just as I was preparing for this series a number of weeks and months ago, uh, I felt compelled to come here again. I, I just want to obey the Holy Spirit as he leads and I'm trusting that he's going to be speaking afresh to our hearts today. It's, it's, uh, it's his voice through his word proclaimed that I want you to hear. And the truth is we could preach this text probably 10 weeks in a row and he would speak uh, in a unique way to our hearts every time because that's, that's what our personal God does. He speaks to us personally. And so I'm trusting that he's going to do that here uh, this morning. So I want to turn back again uh, to the back of your Bible to this, this passage here in Revelation chapter 5 where John records the vision that he saw uh, of the throne room of heaven. He's given this, the, the veil is pulled away, and he's given this, this access uh, that you and I now have through him. And I want to go here and see how even here in this, this vision, the gospel of Jesus Christ takes center stage. And I want to look at what the implications are of that for us as we work through what it means to be, as we've been saying for weeks now, missional, in our living, and in our giving, and in our going. So turn to Revelation chapter 5. If you grab the guest Bible on one of the back little podiums there, uh, we'll be on page 992. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, or if you want one in this uh, particular translation, the New Living Translation, you're welcome to keep that. It is a gift from us to you. Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's 14 verses here, beginning in verse 1. John writes, Then... I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders, that's mentioned back in chapter 4, which we'll, we will refer to here in a minute. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. And they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, and of the living beings and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang blessing and honor And glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. Now I want to highlight three points from this passage here that together form what I would refer to as something of a summary of of the gospel. And and the first point that I want to point out to you is this. God is the sovereign creator. Now you kids, if you're filling out your bulletins, maybe one of the questions for you is a word you haven't heard before, and perhaps the word sovereign is that word. I'm not going to tell you how to spell it. You can ask the the, the adult next to you to struggle through how to spell sovereign. But sovereign means all-powerful. God is the sovereign, all-powerful creator. Now as you recall, Chapter 5 in Revelation is a continuation of what John began to see back in chapter 4. I didn't want to take the time to read all of chapter 4 and chapter 5, but it's all one continuous vision that John is is beholding here. And back in chapter 4, he begins by saying, I looked, and a door standing open to heaven, and I was basically caught up there, and instantly in the Spirit he sees a throne, and there's one sitting on the throne. And the one he sees, of course, majestic and brilliant, is God, the creator of heaven and earth. And in his presence throughout chapter 4 and continuing, continuing into chapter 5 is, we're told, the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. So you have God the Father, God the Spirit, and then here in chapter 5, as we just read, the Lamb is God the Son. You have here together the one holy triune God. And surrounding him are 24 thrones. And seated on those 24 thrones are 24 elders, and they're clothed in white, and they have, they have crowns on their heads. And, and together they refer to the, the sum of the 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New. They, they represent the church, the complete people of God, who have been, as Paul says in uh, chapter 2, verse 6 of Ephesians, they've been raised up with Christ. They are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is the, the one people of God from the Old and the New Testament together in him. And here's God dwelling amidst his people. And then finally in verse 6 of chapter 4, it says, In the center and around the throne were four living beings. They were referred to again there in chapter 5. And when you read the descriptions, it's kind of like this trippy, kind of crazy description of these four living beings. But basically, um, these are images taken from uh, the prophets Ezekiel and the prophet Isaiah, and, and these four living beings basically represent the whole created order of animate life. So all of creation is represented here, and they're, they're performing their intended function. The reason God created the, the world is that the world, everything in it, would ceaselessly praise him, would give him glory, would proclaim his, his greatness, all of creation. So that's the picture John's beholding. That's the one we, we receive in chapter 4 and continuing into chapter 5. That is, that is the context from which John is recording this vision. And he says, here in chapter 5, the one seated on the throne is holding a scroll. 
He's holding a scroll. And it's not just any scroll. It's one that contains words on the inside and the outside. And it is sealed with seven seals. This idea that it is, it is completely sealed. It cannot be opened by accident. It cannot be opened like if it, God were able to somehow drop it on the floor and it lands on a cloud or what, you know, or images of heaven and whatever that is. And oops, a, a seal popped off and you got to take a peek on the inside. No, it is completely sealed. No one is taking it from his strong hand. No one is going to take control over it. And you might be wondering, what is the point of a, of a sealed scroll in the scriptures? Well, you go back to Ezekiel and to Daniel and to Isaiah, and you see that sealed scrolls refer to divine revelation that pertain to judgment and redemption. This is sort of high-level revelation here of, of, of what God intends to do in his creation as it pertains to those two things. There is judgment coming, there is redemption being offered. And God, God alone is in control of that destiny. It belongs to him. And no one can wrestle it from his hand, no one can pry his fingers open, no one can overcome the strong right hand of God. He controls it. Remember back in chapter 4 verse 11, it says, He created all things, and all things exist because he wills it to exist. All of creation, everything around you is here. Thank you for a, a lesson from Genesis, a, a series from Genesis. We need, we need to hear it. We need to hear that in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. There's nothing that precedes him. He is, he is the, the unmoved mover, the uncaused causer of everything that is. And everything that is, everything around you, everything beneath you, you yourself are only here because God willed you to be here. And all of history is moving in the direction that he intends he is superintending all of history and all of his creation, and it only exists and continues to exist and can only ever exist because he wills it to exist. And in his strong right hand lies the destiny and the fate of the cosmos. In other words, it's another way of saying that God reigns. God is sovereign. God is, and God alone is in control. And this truth, friends, is foundational to our basic, most basic understanding of God's relationship to his creation. He's not a part of his creation. He is set apart from his creation. He transcends his creation. He is before creation. He is not dependent upon creation. Rather, it is dependent upon him. And not only is this truth foundational, our understanding of God's relationship to his creation, but of our relationship to him. And even, by the way, the church's understanding of its mission. If we're ever going to understand the fullness of, of who we're called to be and what we're called to do, it has to start here, that God is the one in charge, that God is the one in control, and God is the one directing history towards his intended end. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes this. He says, Almighty God needs no support. <laughs> Plug that into your missiology, into your understanding of what it means to be a witness to Christ in the world, or to go and make disciples of all the nations. Plug that into there, that God needs no support. Too often we think it's up to us to, to do what God cannot do for himself. God needs help up there. He's struggling. So I'm going to come alongside and give him the aid he requires. No. God needs no support. So lofty, Tozer continues, so lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. 
Probably the hardest thought of all for our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. We commonly represent him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father carrying, I'm sorry, hurrying about seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. That's God. He's just the frantic, like, I've got so much to do and so many, so many people to, to connect to and save and so much need in the world, and I need, I need help. That's, that's us trying to get our kids ready for church in the morning. That's not God. That's not the picture that the scriptures give us of the sovereign one who's seated on a throne. It's the, it's the perfect picture of peace and control and, and rule. He is in charge. He is in control. He's not flustered. God's heart rate is not accelerated as he, as he, as he looks upon the, the need in the world for the gospel to spread. That's not the picture we get at all. No, he is absolutely holy. He is absolutely sovereign. He is all-wise and all-powerful, utterly transcendent from his creation. He needs nothing apart from himself, not even you and not even me, especially not me. Listen, O Israel, this is what sets you apart from all the other religions of the world. Yahweh is God. He is Lord alone. Point number one. Point number two. On his own, mankind, not God, mankind left to himself is quite the opposite of God. We are utterly helpless. Look again at verses 2 and 3. It says, I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Tell me if you remember the uh, AMC Theater's clumsy conductor. You're probably like, what is that? When I was growing up, whenever we went to an AMC movie theater, before, right before the movie began, they'd roll this little animated clip of this light kind of shining through the darkness, this little kind of dinky music in the background, and all of a sudden you heard this loud clatter, and the lights would come on, and it's this little animated figure, a humanoid person made of... Uh, eight millimeter film reel, right? And he's holding the flashlight and he'd crash into a bunch of film can- canisters. Do you, does anybody remember that at all? Go on YouTube and search AMC Clumsy Conductor and watch, the, it's like 10 seconds long. I promise you it'll take you back to like 1988 or something like that. But, but there, I know, it was a long time ago, like centuries ago. The kids are like, oh. The old people are like, that was like yesterday. The kids are like, that was forever ago. But there was a punchline at the end of the little clip. Does anybody remember what it was? Silence is golden. Silence is golden. And they're right. Because there's nothing worse when you're sitting in the movie theater than cell phones going off and people chit-chatting. And I will never understand why people bring, like, infants to, like, PG-13 movies. Like, what is going on when there's, like, a baby screaming in the middle of, like, a, an action movie? What, what is happening here? Find a babysitter for crying out loud. Wait till it comes out on a red box or something. Quick, bring in babies to the movie theater. Silence is golden. And I can tell you, as a parent of three children, I find that expression one of the great axioms of life. <laughs> and I'm not alone. Some people date this expression or some form of this expression all the way back to ancient Egypt. And you can check that for yourself. People 5,000 years ago, parents 5,000 years ago, 
can affirm that there's something magical about that hour when the kids have gone to bed. There's something magical about it. Now, kids, your parents love you with all of their hearts. They will do anything for you. They cherish you. You're precious. They've, they've arranged all of their lives around your needy lives because they love you. But kids, your parents are human. Your parents are weak. Your parents are tired. <laughs> you might get one amen today and it's going to be right here. That hour that you go to bed, But we know, what, we know what babies do, don't we? They, they grow up. And super talkative, sort of streams of consciousness little kids become quiet, mumbly, moody teenagers. I was one. My, my mom could attest, when I was a, a young boy, I never, ever, ever stopped talking. Ever. But then when I became a teenager, I'll never forget my dad would always remark how he would, you know, see us after school and he'd say, how was school? And it'd be like, fine. <laughs> fine. <clears throat> but then some of you know that one day the house is silent all the time, isn't it? <laughs> it's silent all the time. And there are days, perhaps, when you miss the hustle and the bustle and the chaos and the clatter. And then you wonder why you ever squandered those days. I, 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 that's one of my fears as a parent, is that one day when mine are all out of the house, that I'll look back on today with regret. And wonder, did I take advantage of, of that opportunity? Because I have a feeling that when the last one is grown and out, that there will be a silence that won't, maybe it won't be golden. Maybe it will be deafening, a deafening kind of silence. And maybe some of you are like, well, no, I, I was just ready for them to be out of the house. And I, the silence is golden. But there are other deafening kinds of silences, aren't there? When someone you love is is deceased. I remember when my brother Devin, I'm the youngest of four, Devin is the next youngest, and he and I were very close growing up, best friends. I remember the day that he moved out to college, and we, it was an hour away. We, my parents and I helped load the stuff and took him down there and got him moved in, and we came back, and I walked into the house, and the house felt so empty. And there was this silence in the house that hurt I don't think the silence that is implied in verse 3 here of our text was golden at all. And we know that's true because in the very next verse, the only sound recorded in the passage, in the midst of all these saints and all this 
you know, all of creation, all this busyness and all this sort of sensory overload in the midst of all that's going on in the throne room of heaven at the very heart and center of reality itself, the only sound recorded is a man weeping. And he's not, it's just not some little quiet sniffle like I'm struggling with up here as I think about my kids growing up and moving away. It wasn't a quiet sniffle. It was this, the word there in the Greek, it's this open, just persistent wail from the depths of the soul. He's weeping because here at last, as he sees sort of this panorama of, of all of history coming to a climax, the grand end of everything, at the, at the, the point of it all, the very heart and center of, of God's purposes, we have this scroll that contains the destiny and the fate of all things ready to be opened and no one worthy to do it. Now in a different world, you know, perhaps John reacts in this moment in a different way. You know, maybe in a world where, you know, everything is right, in a world where nothing is broken and everything is healed and everything is good and perfect and true at all times, maybe in that kind of sort of <laughs> hypothetical world, in this instant, maybe John doesn't react in this way. But that's not the world you and I live in, is it? You and I don't live in that kind of world. No, we live in a world where, where marriages collapse and where children get cancer, where nations invade nation and people starve and, you know, fill in the blank. We live in a world where seemingly the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. We live in a world that is corrupted by sin. We live in a world where the default condition of every human person that is brought into it is one that they are dead, as the scriptures say, Ephesians 2, dead from birth, spiritually stillborn. We are dead in our sins and in our trespasses. Our nature is broken. And we come into the world not only dead spiritually, but we come into the world enslaved to the world. Into the flesh, our nature, our sinful nature. Enslaved to the devil, the enemy of your soul. And you by nature, as you come into this world like that, as the scriptures say in Ephesians 2, are a child of wrath by nature. You deserve, you and I are all deserving recipients of the wrath of God. Friends, that's the world you and I live in. It is a world that Paul says in Romans 8.22, it is a world that is groaning. It is a world longing to be made right. And John knew that. John knew that. Here's, here's the answer to all the pain and all the suffering and all the brokenness and all the sin not only out there, but right here. No one's there to open it. 
And John knows that's the world we live in, and you and I do too. And that no one was found worthy, even among the saints and angels in heaven, to open the scroll speaks, among other things, to the absolute hopelessness of mankind left to themselves. And if you came in here today trying to live life well, on your own, apart from God, and if you're being honest with yourself, you know that you can't do it. You can't fix the brokenness of your world. You can't fix the sin in your own heart. You can't fix the carnal lusts and desires that are at war inside of you. You cannot break your own addictions. You cannot be the, the man or the woman or the boy or the girl that honors God and, and serves others selflessly. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot redeem or transform or save a soul. You're powerless and helpless just like the rest of us left to yourself. And that's right there in verses two and three and four. But that's not the whole story. I told you there are three points to this gospel summary right here in Revelation chapter five. And it is this. Jesus is the hope of the nations. There's a voice in verse 5. One of the elders says, Weep not. Weep not. There is one who is worthy. There is one. To receive the scroll from the right hand of the Father. And to not only receive it, Oh, he's worthy to break those seals and read it. It is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne, promised from ages past. The slaughtered lamb, slain from the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who stepped out of heaven and came to us as one of us, right in the middle of of our time of need, right in our helplessness, right in our hopelessness, right in the brokenness of our condition, and he died that you might live. We sang it just a moment ago. The Lamb of God didn't just endure death in our place, though he did. He did die a death that you and I rightly deserve. He died not just for you as a substitute, but he died in place of you. It's your death and my death that he died. And absolutely, we can rightly say that he came and died our death. But he didn't just endure death in our place. He defeated it with his power. He was not a victim to death. Death is a victim to him. So we can look death in the face and based on his sacrifice and what he has done, his death in our place and his, him breaking its power and rising again, we can look at it right in the face and say, where, O oh death, is your victory? Who's silent now? Where's the silence now? Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Crickets chirping. He has defeated it 
once and for all. And therefore, the hope of all the nations, of every person lost in darkness, every person that has been broken and ravaged by sin, every person who suffers, the hope is the lion who is a lamb. The one who is worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. He is the one that is worthy to receive and control the destiny of the cosmos. He is the one worthy to distribute both judgment and blessing. And why? Why? For you were slaughtered. And your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and nation and you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign upon the earth that is why he is worthy and that's the connection by the way that's the climactic application of this passage to our missions focused sermon series and it is this the ultimate purpose the ultimate purpose for all of our missional living and giving and going, what we've been talking about for for several weeks, the ultimate purpose for it all is nothing other than the glory of God. Now, there are more immediate purposes for missional living, giving, and going, of course. There's, There's all manner of human suffering in the world that needs alleviation. And so you and I go to feed and to tend to and to visit and to, to minister to. and t- I mean, Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, when you did it unto them, you did it unto me. There's a mandate to go and, and alleviate human suffering in the world. You and I, one of the immediate purposes for missional living, giving, and going is to go into the world and fight for real justice in society. Not some sort of woke, you know, progressive social justice nonsense. I'm talking about real justice to, for people who are suffering injustice in the world. You and I absolutely have to be salt and light and go and give that we might fight that truly as Christians in the world. And you and I absolutely need to go into the world and share the good news with people who are lost and dying and going to hell. And, and all of those are good, biblical, necessary truthful reasons for missional living, giving, and going. But all of those purposes, however noble and right and true, are subordinate to a higher purpose. The higher purpose being nothing other than the glory and honor of Christ. All of heaven and all of earth praise and worship the Lamb. Why? For what he has done. And that is the highest reason why we share with our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and our spouses and complete strangers both here and abroad the good news of Jesus Christ. Not just to convert people, but that he might be praised. That we might proclaim to the nations what God and Christ has done. Paul says in Ephesians 1, before all time, God chose us to be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. So yes, church, let's go to our neighbors and our community and into all the world that we might share a message of hope and life to the lost and to the helpless and to the hopeless in the world but let's do so convinced first of God's sovereignty. 
that God is in control. He sits on a throne. Absolutely, let's go. And let's do so convinced of God's love demonstrated by his son, the lamb standing slaughtered, whose wounds continuously cry out of his all-sufficiency to save, of God's hatred of sin, but love for sinners. Let's absolutely go convinced of that, but let's ultimately go. That every bit of our lives, who we are, what we do, both as individuals and as a church, might result in the blessing and in the honor and in the glory and in the power of Christ. I like this quote from David Platt. He says, our obedience to the great commission of Christ is incomplete if we just make make disciples. Let me read that again, then I'll read the rest of the quote. Our obedience to the great commission of Christ is incomplete if we just make disciples. He continues, our commission is to make disciples of all the nations, of all the peoples. Our sovereign God deserves the praise of not just 10,000 people groups on the planet, but all 16,000 of them. And we're not going to stop until every single people group purchased by Christ is exalting his name. So friends, if Jesus died, as it says in verse 9, to ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, then let us go to people of every tribe and language and people and nation because God needs us to? No. But so that, as the prophet Habakkuk said, we heard so beautifully read this morning, so that the earth might be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can we be a church that does that? Yes, let's go and alleviate suffering. Yes, let's go and fight for justice. Yes, let's go and share a message that is hope to the hopeless, that is light to the blind, that is liberty to the captive, that sets people free. But let's ultimately go to the glory and honor of God and God alone. Lord, thank you that we are a church that cares about missional living, giving, and going. I know it's true because I see it. I see it in the lives of the people that I call my church family. They're an example to me, a witness to me, motivation, a pattern, an inspiration to my life. I thank you for every one of them who seek to love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as, their, as themselves, and are earnest and sincere in their commitment to go and to be a witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Lord, may that continue to be the heartbeat of our, of our church life, to be missional, on mission in every bit of life, that we, we break all those compartments down where we say, this is my church life, this is my missional life, and then here's my regular everyday life. Lord, may there be no sacred secular divide in me or any of us anymore. Break those barriers down so that we are missional in every aspect of life, every dimension of life, in every relationship, in every venue, in every context, in every conversation. We're thinking about how we can bring you glory. May we be a people who continue to give, to give freely, to to hold nothing of this world with, with fists, but to only ever hold them with open hands. Lord, next week we have an opportunity. to to be open-handed with what you've blessed us with as we give to a missions offering once a year. Lord, may this be the 
the biggest missions offering this church has ever given. Not because we're so wealthy, but because you have lavished your wealth upon us in every form of the word, and we just give back sacrificially for your purposes. And Lord, we want to be missional continually in our going. That we're not content to just play it safe and throw money at other people, but that we would all be willing to put our own necks on the line, hoping in the the better things of the life to come, embodying your self-giving love to the world around us, that they might know you and that you might be praised. Lord, bring all these truths home to our hearts right now as we respond to the last month of preaching and missions-focused songs and activities and uh, fellowship time. All this, may this all come together right here as we close in this song. Lord, affirm these things to our hearts and may we be convinced of their truths and be willing to take them out into the world as your people. Lord, we ask these things for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.